I think there's a place for that. If there's questions that are burning and there's never been a good opportunity to ask something, uh, we want to leave room for that, and yet, whatever, we don't want to force that issue either, uh, or maybe it's too short notice, maybe you want a time to think about that. So I'm also happy to do, because it is the closest Sunday to October the 31st, uh, to Reformation Sunday, that we could look a little bit where we left off a year ago uh, and kind of pick up the history uh, from there and help us understand our own place in history maybe a little better. So feedback on this. Where do we want to go? Are there any burning questions that we need to address first? Did everyone hear Jeremy's question? We talked, when we talk about the Reformation, we often talk lots about Luther, and understandably so. Sometimes we talk about the pre-reformers, like Wycliffe and Tyndale and Hus. Uh, or not Tyndale, I guess, he was at the same time, but Wycliffe and Hus. Um, and so Jeremy's question was, where does Kelvin fit in this? Was he working with Luther? Was it kind of two parallel things working at the same time? Uh, so that would be actually a question that could segue fairly well. Um, do we want to explore that a bit? Then unless somebody wants to uh, derail this, then what we'll do is we'll pick up at Kelvin and we'll get to England uh, if we've got time. Okay? Are we all good? We'll go from France to Switzerland to England to Canada? Okay. We'll see if we can get that far in half an hour. Okay, so the question comes up about Kelvin. What was his relationship to Luther? Uh, and I'd say complicated. So, Kelvin is to Luther what I would be to Mr. Ginter in terms of age. They're roughly a generation apart. They're about 25, 30 years age difference. So they were very much alive at the same time. Kelvin would have been about eight in 1517, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he would have been a young boy when all this Reformation talk started. And he grew up in a French Catholic family. Everyone was Catholic back then. Uh, so uh, he was from a Catholic background. There was a practice in the medieval church called simony. Has anyone ever heard of simony? Okay. Simony is when your dad wanted to set you up for life and he would buy you a bishopric. Right? And it's named after Simon in the New Testament. Um, you know, paying off for spiritual gifts, essentially. Buying spiritual status. Uh, and so simony was a practice whereby fathers could buy their children bishoprics in the Catholic Church. And of course, it wasn't quite that crass. Uh, they were given the honor of a bishopric in exchange for the good work of almsgiving, kind of like indulgences. Um, but it turned out into buying. And, and Calvin's dad bought him two bishoprics and wanted to set his son up uh, to be a bishop in the church, to be a clergyman. And he was on that path. Um, he was a humanist student, so studying the humanities, literature and music and so forth. Uh, he was a, a major student of Seneca and of the old Roman world. And he was interested in studying law. 
uh, but his father pressured him into, into church work, kind of the exact opposite of Luther. Luther wanted, uh, Luther's father very much wanted him to be a lawyer, and Luther himself kind of ended up into church work. Uh, and Calvin started reading Luther's works. He started to become familiar with these ideas. Um, and Calvin's a little harder to understand than Luther because Luther writes about himself all the time. Every other sentence that Luther writes is about himself, and Calvin says nothing about himself. Um, which then you can understand. Luther is the stormy, moody man, and he really was very tempestuous man. And Calvin is just seen as like a 11-pound brain on legs because he doesn't, he doesn't express his heart. He doesn't show his personality, and that's an intentional decision because Calvin was so focused on the glory of God, his motto was kind of preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what I want to do. I want to die and be forgotten. And no one knows where Calvin's grave is, for sure, for certain, because he said, please don't mark my grave. He knew enough in his time that he was the theologian uh, that he thought, if they mark my grave, it's going to become some kind of a Christian shrine, and I don't want that. Um, so we know actually not a whole lot about Calvin the man, nothing almost from himself. Um, he was a sickly, frail man. If you see paintings of Calvin, you see he's this skinny, little, bony man. Um, basically read and wrote himself to death. He would write until his hands were too sore to write, and then he would put a towel on his papers, and he would retire for the evening. Um, preaching five times a week, writing books. He wrote, who's ever heard of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin? He completed that book at age 26. <laughs> okay, what were you doing in your 20s? Um, he completed that book. He made some changes to it as time went on. He wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. He was teaching several times a week. Um, the, the productivity of some of these old guys is remarkable because they didn't have Logos Bible software that they could just search a word and they're immediately there. If they're looking for something in Isaiah, they have to go read Isaiah until they find it. Um, it was an incredible amount of work to read and write in those days relative to today, but some of these men were highly, highly, highly productive. Um, Calvin married an Anabaptist widow, a, a Dutch lady by the name of Idolette de Boer. Um, they had one child who died in infancy, um, and so he left no living children. Um, there's, who knows that there's a Will Ferrell in church history? Okay, there is a Will Ferrell in church history. Uh, another Swiss guy. Uh, Calvin did not want to be a preacher. He did not want to be a pastor. He, was, he wanted to be a scholar. He wanted to write. He was a quiet man, a reserved man. He just wanted to sit and write. Um, and in Geneva, as Geneva was becoming Protestant, um, there was lots of heat, uh, lots of friction, lots of controversy, as you might imagine, a city that's kind of being kicked back and forth between Catholicism um, and Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation. So for a season, Calvin went up to Strasbourg um, to get away from it all, uh, and Will Farrell came through and said that he had it, I wouldn't recommend this, this almost sounds like charismatic stuff, but it really isn't. Uh, I think it was just a show of force. He said, God's going to punish you if you don't come back to Geneva. We really need you in Geneva. And Calvin struggled with that because his time in Geneva previously had not been happy at all. Uh, people named their dogs after him. Uh, they made fun of him after his wife died, saying that this was God's curse. His dead child was a curse from God. Um, 
they'd throw rocks in his windows, they'd light stuff on fire at his door. He, was, uh, he didn't have an easy life, and he just wanted to be away from that for good. And so when Farrell said, you know, we're making great headway in Geneva, we need you back there, he really, really struggled with going back. But he thought, if this is, uh, if this is where God needs me and I need to be back in the limelight in Geneva, I'll go back. He was gone for about two years. When he had left his church in Geneva, at St. Peter's, I believe it was called, he was preaching through the Psalms. And when he got back, this is one of my absolute favorite anecdotes in church history. These people had mistreated him so poorly. And now they had mostly become Protestants, and they wanted him back. And he gets back, and he never says a word about the mistreatment. He never says a word about his time in Strasbourg. He just climbs the pulpit, opens Psalm 37, and starts preaching right where he had left off two years earlier. Didn't say a word about himself. I mean, this man was absolutely consumed with getting the Lord's uh, work done. Um, and made great inroads. That I've sometimes talked about some of the English Puritans when they got expelled from England. They, some of them, like John Knox, came down to Geneva to learn at Calvin's Pastors College. Uh, and so many of the Puritans went to the Netherlands, many went to Geneva and to learn under Calvin. Uh, and so they, they did that. Um, he was a very productive man. Uh, now the relationship with Luther, so I don't miss that, these two were this close on almost everything. The Lutherans and the Reformed started at different places. The Lutherans, of course, started in Germany. The Reformed started in Switzerland and, to some degree, France. Uh, and then it moved out from there. So these weren't rival movements. They were just geographically different movements headed in the same direction. So they were kind of parallel. And the thinking was, why don't we get this together? If we have one Reformation movement across Europe, we will be much stronger than if each nation is kind of attempting their own project. And Luther and Calvin agreed on almost everything except for the nature of the Lord's Supper. Um, there's three views of the Lord's Supper. There's what's called the Zwinglian view, which is named after Zwingli which is probably the way most of us grew up uh, in that the Lord's Supper is nothing but a bare memorial. All we're doing is doing something in memory. It's just a bare memorial. The Roman Catholic view, of course, is that the bread and wine miraculously becomes blood and flesh, called transubstantiation. The elements change into something else as you take them. The Lutheran view was it stays bread and wine, but also in a mysterious way that we don't understand is flesh and blood. Okay? The Catholics had it exactly worked out how it became flesh and blood. The Lutherans said it's a mystery. We don't know. We know it's actual bread and wine, but we also know it's actual flesh and blood. Kelvin's view said, no, there's nothing mystical happening, but Christ is spiritually present with us when we take this meal. So Kelvin's view was stronger than Zwingli's, but not nearly as mystical as the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. And so, uh, a gentleman by the name of Martin Butzer called a colloquy or a gathering together to get the Calvinists and the Lutherans together and see if we can hammer out the last of these differences um, so we have one united reform movement across Europe, uh, which I think was a good move with good intentions. And the reformed guys were sharing their view and Luther, again, remember he's a tempestuous, angry man. 
right? Luther goes up to the pulpit when it's his turn. Hulk est corpus meum. <laughs> Hulk est corpus meum. This is my blood. This is my blood. And he refused to, <laughs> he wouldn't even enter a discussion. Jesus says, this is my body. It's my body. There's nothing to discuss. Okay? And, and yes, literally <laughs> banging his shoe. Okay, well, this conversation isn't going to go very far. <laughs> so, all right, that's a failed attempt. We're not, we're not going to get together, apparently. And so the Reformed went home with their tails between their legs, and the Lutherans went home knowing that they had owned the Reformed at this debate. I personally think that is the worst moment of Martin Luther's life. I love the man. But the fact that he wasn't willing to listen or engage in debate, humanly speaking, did keep the Reformation movement from becoming one body, because the body of doctrine was actually no different. Uh, it, it, to me, it's a sad chapter that they couldn't get it together. Uh, and as Luther lay dying, he was made aware of Calvin's view. So Luther thought he was just debating Zwingli, and this is just a bare memorial. There's no spiritual presence whatsoever. On his deathbed, someone told Luther about Calvin's view about spiritual presence, and he said, oh yeah, well that I could have worked with. Okay. <laughs> I, I happen personally to hold probably Calvin's view. It, I don't think anything magical happens, but I don't think it's a, a bare memorial. I, I do think Christ is spiritually present with us, and he is spiritually feeding us when we take the elements. I don't think it's just a bare memorial. I, I think that view is too plain. Um, so I think Calvin about struck it right. Luther was not listening, and so it's unfortunate that we're not together fully, although there is lots of overlap. So the, the Reformation movement did stay separate. The Lutherans evangelized the Scandinavian countries, which is why if you go into Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, there's a Lutheran church everywhere. The reason why is because those are Finlanders. Those are Norwegians and Swedes that moved to that area. That's why there's a little Lutheran church everywhere. Okay? Um, the Reformed movement stayed further south. You know, Switzerland, Germany, France, the Netherlands uh, made it up to England. Um, and Roman Catholicism, of course, stayed very... Uh, South, Italy, Spain, uh, so forth, uh, and also to a large degree France. Um, and so there's large overlap. If you go to a Lutheran church, the doctrine you would hear, if it's a conservative Lutheran church, would not be so different from what you'd hear here or at a conservative Presbyterian church. It would be very similar. What would seem different to you would be it would look Roman Catholic to your eyes. Okay? You'd have a clerical collar, you'd have robes. Uh, you'd have candles, you'd have incense. It would look Roman Catholic, but the understanding of the gospel would be very, very, very similar uh, to what we would, uh, would hold. Uh, and of course, when they would take the elements, you would hear something different than what you would hear uh, in a Reformed or in a Baptistic kind of a church. So that's that in five minutes. I don't know if that answers your questions on the relationship of these two men. Um... Calvin loved Luther from the bottom of his heart, and Luther respected Calvin. I think that would be a fair way to put it. I don't know if that makes sense. Any questions on that? Keith? Yeah. 
Yes. That, yeah, that was Luther's view. Okay, so I, I distilled it down to the Lord's Supper, but it's really the sacraments overall because they do have a different view of baptism. Okay, so keep in mind, at this point in church history, the entire Christian world is paedo-baptist. Okay, we're going to get to believers' baptism, maybe. But the entire Christian world doesn't agree on how you arrive at paedo-baptism, but they all agree that the practice is paedo-baptism for different reasons. The Catholics uh, baptize babies in order to erase original sin so that the child is now free to cooperate with grace. The Reformed baptized infants not because it did anything to them but as a sign and seal of them growing up as covenant children in a Christian home. The Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration which is all the elect, all future believers are actually born again at the moment of their baptism. Okay? So it's not efficacious for everyone, but for all who will believe down the road, when that baby is baptized, that's the moment of their regeneration. Okay? And again, this comes from a, what they would understand to be a very literal reading of Scripture. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and this, we don't know how it works, but that's what the Bible says, so that's what the Bible says. So they don't flesh it out very clearly, but they do believe all, all who come to believe in their life are born again at the moment of their baptism. Often Lutherans don't have a great answer because they're much more willing to accept mystery than, let's say, we are. They'll say, we don't know how this works, but Jesus said it, so... There is, this is a double-edged sword because these Lutheran ministers actually did a really good job of explaining Lutheranism. Has anyone ever heard of Keith Foskey? He does these little satire videos on YouTube. Conversations with the Calvinist is his podcast. He's a Reformed Baptist preacher from Florida. Uh, and he just did a thing with five Lutheran ministers explaining Lutheranism. And these are conservative Lutheran ministers, so like they're the actual Lutherans, not the liberal kind of rainbow Lutherans that are so prevalent. These are actual Lutherans. And, and they do a pretty good job, to my ears, of explaining Lutheran theology. And there's lots of questions which they'll just say, we don't know. We don't know, but Jesus said it, so we don't have to know how baptismal regeneration works, but that's our understanding of Scripture. But they're not saying with that that it's, in the Catholic view, if the elements are administered by a legitimate authority, they actually work. 100% of the time, okay? Lutherans wouldn't say that. Lutherans wouldn't say that the water automatically does something. It's, it's, it's the moment of conversion for those who will be converted, if that makes sense. Anything else on the Lutherans? Okay. Okay. I did not know that. Who's ready to move to England? Ready to go north? Okay. Oh, Mike. Oh, you're okay. I thought you were raising your hand separately. You're ready to move to England. All right. Three cheers for England. Come on. Jolly old England. All right. So this is all happening in Europe. 
and the UK is a little further away, but pretty close. Um, and we all know about Henry VIII and his six wives, right? right? Henry VIII is a devout Roman Catholic uh, under the authority of the Pope, as all monarchs, all crowned heads were under the Pope at that time. Uh, and King Henry wanted to marry Catherine of Aragon, uh, and he was unable to because of her previous marital status. So he got some English bishops and the Pope to do some very creative work in the book of Numbers to show that he could marry Catherine of Aragon. So some very brilliant theologians did show their work, and yes, actually, the Pope can grant special dispensation to Henry to marry Catherine of Aragon. Good. Big win for Henry. He marries Catherine. And Catherine is unable to produce an heir for him. So now he asks his theologians to show how those theologians did their work all wrong. And this was never a legitimate marriage in the first place. <laughs> he knows he can't divorce her. But maybe he can show that this was an illegitimate marriage all the way along. So now they have to get really clever. They had to get extremely clever to get him married to her. And now they have to be even more on the ball <laughs> to show their work why he can just walk away from her. But in a great turn of biblical scholarship, they were able to show... Um, that he shouldn't have married Catherine of Aragon, and so he does away with her. And he, he goes through six wives. There's a little rhyme. A divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Okay, that's, that's his six wives. Um, and finally, his last wife is able to produce an heir for him. And at this point, because he had kind of broken ranks with the Roman Catholic Church, he, he declared himself head of the English Church. This is the early days of the Church of England. Um, and the Church of England, theologically, was no different. This wasn't like an actual Protestant or Reformation movement in doctrine or morals whatsoever. It was just, I don't want to be under the Pope's authority. This was strictly a move about authority at the, at the outset. He just didn't want to answer to the Pope. So he named himself uh, the head of the Church of England. And interestingly, we just walked through a coronation someone else just got coronated as the head of the Church of England, right? Charles III uh, was just named church, uh, the head of the Church of England. This is a, a comes with the crown uh, to this very day. Um, Henry had a son, finally, Edward VI, who became king as a young boy, I think around six or eight years old, uh, and a very convinced Protestant, so he wasn't a Protestant just because he wanted to be away from Rome. His education was Protestant. He wanted uh, England to be a Protestant country. And between the age of 8 and 16, it's always remarkable to me what these people accomplish at some of the ages they are, no doubt with advisors, uh, he seriously reformed the Church of England in a very Protestant and reformed direction by conviction. Now this isn't just a, a, a contest of authority. This is actually by conviction uh, he reformed. Uh, the Church of England. He got sick at age 16, and as he knew he was dying, he knew his sister, a lady by the name of Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. Remember the Spaniard who Henry wanted until he didn't want her? <laughs> okay. Uh, his older sister Mary was about to become queen, and Mary had a real hatred of the Reformation mostly because of what her father had done to her mother, casting her out and starting the Church of England. So she had a chip on her shoulder about the whole Church of England bit. And Edward knew, if the crown goes to my sister, we're going right back to Rome. And I don't want that. We've gone too far. We've done too much in my 10 years as king 
for this to go back. So one of his dying wishes was, I'm going to make my cousin Lady Jane Grey queen after I die. Lady Jane Grey was a young lady of about 16 or 17, a very well-educated, very convinced, reformed Christian. Uh, and he named her to be queen after his death. And he dies, and she's crowned queen, and there is, as you can imagine, no small amount of controversy about this, right? <laughs> the crown should go to his sister by its succession rights, but he made a special request. I wanted to go to my cousin. And Lady Jane Grey was queen for nine days. She was uh, in prison. She was interrogated. And keep in mind, this, our little Jane back there, I understand from her dad, is named partially after Lady Jane Grey. Okay? This is a true heroine of the Christian faith. Keep in mind, this is a 16-year-old girl who, if she converts to Roman Catholicism, can become the most powerful crowned head in Europe. Or she cannot convert and be killed. Think of that. Age 16. I can say some words and be the most powerful crowned head, or I cannot say those words and I'll die. And there was nine days of disputation, and the bishops tried to convince her how she should become Roman Catholic and spare her life and, uh, and all this. And, and they have a very educated disagreement about whether there's seven sacraments or two. And this is, I find it remarkable, this is a teenage girl who's going toe-to-toe with bishops and explaining to them, no, there's only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that's it. There's no penance, there's no ordination, there's no... She doesn't recant. She's queen for nine days and then is killed. Okay? A hero of the Christian faith. And the crown moves back to Henry's family, Edward's older sister, Mary, Bloody Mary. She has the crown. She hates Reformed Christians. She hates Protestants. She expels all the Reformed English clergy. 2,000 of them had to leave England. Again, this is where the relationship between the Dutch and the English Puritans uh, comes on fairly strong. Many of them go to to the Netherlands. Some go to Switzerland. Uh, Eventually, Mary dies childless, and the crown goes to another sister, Elizabeth. So three of Henry VIII's children end up getting the crown. Elizabeth is queen, and she's friendly to the Reformed again, and so they start making their way back from uh, continental Europe. And she's known as the Virgin Queen. She never married. She never had children. Henry VIII, the, the House of Tudor ends with her and it has to switch families uh, to her cousin, James I. Has anyone heard of the King James Bible? Okay, So King James takes the crown. Um, King James is confusing. He was baptized a Roman Catholic. He grew up in the Presbyterian Church, but his heart was Anglican. Okay, So this is a, a, a confused man. And nobody quite knew what to do with James because he's kind of an ally to everybody and kind of an ally to nobody. Um, but uh, he kind of kept things stable, I guess, um, until Charles I took over. Charles I was a tyrannical king. He started several wars against his own parliament. Uh, he was not loved at all. He was a very strong Roman Catholic. He appointed a man by the name of William Laud to unreform the Church of England and bring it all the way back essentially to Roman Catholicism. So William Laud, and and now this is where the Puritans come in, because now we have a Reformed church in England, okay? Um, And Parliament had actually asked 
the, the, the ministers of the day, once they all came back from Europe, said, can you please draft for us a document that will serve as the constitution for the Church of England? And they went to work for several years and came up with what was called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which hopefully everyone's heard of. Has anyone heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Okay. So they did their work over several years, brought it back to Parliament to approve that this was going to be the, uh, the constitutional documents of the Church of England. The Church of Scotland accepted it right away, became the Presbyterian Church, and to this day, Presbyterianism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's, at least for real Presbyterians, that's a, a very strong connection. The English Parliament wasn't happy with their work because there wasn't enough biblical references in it. Can you imagine that? Parliament saying, yeah, there's not enough biblical proof texts in your work. Can you please do that and then bring it back and we'll approve it? And they eventually did. They came back and in 1646, the English Parliament approved the Westminster Confession of Faith for the Church of England. So at one point in time, the Church of England was thoroughly rock-ribbed reformed church. Okay? Thoroughly. And then Charles declared war and it became a big mess. Uh, he appointed William Laud to undo everything. Let's go back to Rome. They go back to Rome, and now the ministers all have to obey their new orders, and they have to give essentially a Catholic mass in the Church of England. Uh, and in Scotland, there was a lady by the name of Jenny Geddes. I'll give the ladies a few chances to have heroes this morning. So Jane Grey is a hero. This is a bit of a rougher kind of a hero, uh, is Jenny Geddes. In the days, in this time, people brought their own little three-legged stool to church. There was no seating in the church. It was just this long, and you can see that old architecture, right? These long, empty halls with pillars on the side. Uh, uh, Jenny Geddes was a lady-in-waiting, which meant some rich person paid her to take her stool to church, go sit in the front, and wait until this noble person would come and take their spot. She, she was a placeholder so that the person paying her could get their good spot in church once they showed up. And this Catholic Mass starts in the Church of Scotland. And Jenny Geddes is infuriated. And she yells at the minister, says, May the devil strike you with colic in your stomach. I'll not hear this cursed Mass in my ear. And she takes her stool and she throws it at the preacher and hits him. And a brawl breaks out in church. And the Privy Council gets notified and there's security at the door and some of them locked them in because they kind of like this brawl. And so there's a brawl going on inside the church. And there's a brawl going outside in the streets. Because what is the Church of Scotland? Are we Reformed or are we Catholic? And Jenny Geddes, throwing the stool, started this war. And it didn't settle down. Because it actually led to a bishop's war. A formal war between Scotland, Ireland, and England. Uh, the bishop's war led to the War of Three Kingdoms. Uh, so... One lady throwing her stool at a preacher started a civil war in England. And it got really big. Who knows that there was a period in there where England had no crowned head for several years. Has anyone heard of the interregnum? Okay. There, was no, there was no crowned head. Oliver Cromwell, who was a, a Presbyterian, a reformed man, uh, led his forces. Parliament won their war against the crown. And so Parliament was running England without a crown for several years. They executed King Charles I, okay, so he lost his head for all of this. The Church of England is once again reformed, okay, good. Um, and uh, Cromwell is Prime Minister of England, there's no crown. Um, Cromwell dies, his son takes his place, his son isn't as competent a politician as his father, 
This is all falling apart, all the gains that they've made. So they call Charles the son, his, Charles the first son back from Europe, says, we need you to come. We're going to crown your head. Uh, we need to be one big kingdom again. So Charles II comes back. They crown him. Um, and so on and on it goes. But now this is where I will get us to. The Church of England is batted around several times. Not really Catholic, not really Reformed. What are we? Okay? And some people would say that's the problem with the Church of England to this day. <laughs> They've got one foot in the Bible and one foot in Rome, and they don't know what to do. And that's their whole history. They're kind of a, trying to be this middle way uh, and end up pleasing almost nobody in the process. By its documents today, the Church of England is governed by what's called the 39 Articles, which is Reformed. So if there's an Anglican who actually means it with their Anglicanism, like someone like J.I. Packer or someone like John R.W. Stott, an Anglican who means it is a Reformed Christian. Okay? Most Anglicans probably, I would guess, in the high 80s or 90s percent have no idea. They just go to the Church of England because they're white Canadians. Okay? Um, but in all this tumult, um, after Charles II dies, then there's James II, he dies, um, and the crown is going to now go to Mary II, who married a Dutch prince by the name of William of Orange. Have any of our Dutch people heard of William of Orange? Okay. England is such a mess. There's civil war. There's infighting. England's a mess. Mary and William of Orange are going to come back and rescue England, and they did. It's called the Glorious Revolution. It was a revolution that wasn't a revolution because there was no war. Um, William assembled 20,000 Dutch troops. Him and Mary sailed to England and just marched in and took their seat. And they were the crowned heads. There was hardly any bloodshed. But now England has a Dutch king and one of their own daughters as queen uh, in this glorious revolution. And it's called glorious again because it wasn't really a revolution. It wasn't bloody... Uh, they weren't trying to change anything. They were just trying to stabilize this country. This happens in 1689. Okay, why is that significant? Okay, look at your booklet. What does it say? 1689. Okay, this is a significant year. When William and Mary come back from the Netherlands to England and settle things down, they sign what was called the Act of Toleration which means we're just going to take the temperature down here. <laughs> okay? If you're a convinced Roman Catholic, go to Mass. If you're a loyal Church of England person, go to your Anglican church. And if you're a Reformed Presbyterian, do that. And the Baptists were very much in the mix. This document says 1689, but it was actually first put in initial form in 1644, actually before the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then... Uh, after the Westminster Confession of Faith was finalized, these guys essentially took the Westminster Confession verbatim and changed a very few things, just basically regarding baptism, believer's baptism, uh, is almost the only difference from the Westminster Confession of Faith to this. They did that intentionally to say we're all on the same team. We're Reformed Christians. We have a different understanding on baptism, but that's it. Okay? Our ministers and our members flow freely, okay? The Presbyterians and the Baptists are not enemies. We're very good friends. <laughs> we're going to flow. We have different understandings of this, but we're not trying to incite a war. Um, 
This work was done well before 1689, but they couldn't publish it until 1689 because they had no tolerance to operate as churches until then. These guys were, had to operate underground until 1689 when William and Mary came back and established religious tolerance in England. Uh, and so we have the 1689 Baptist Confession from London um, in this time. And we have grown up in an age where we take religious toleration for granted, that multiple churches can be uh, operative parallel to one another in a nation. And I think that's a blessing that comes to us from Protestant Christianity, from a Reformed understanding of the limits of government, uh, that government can't force conversion and so forth. So we take that for granted in our time. But keep in mind, living in this era, uh, there was a fear that if we allow multiple churches to operate in a nation, people will lose their sense of identity. Okay? And the center is going to come out and unravel. And that fear is true. That's actually true. That's one of the worst things about religious toleration is, oh, so I don't have to go to church at all is what's ended up happening, okay? There was benefits. If you knew you were Dutch, you were Reformed. If you were Swiss, you were Reformed. If you're French, you're Roman Catholic. Uh, if you're English, you're Presbyterian. There was benefits to that. It did hold, it was a glue that held society together, and we have lost that. So we have a great blessing with religious toleration, and also we have a great confusion in our culture because of religious toleration. Um, but that is a very fast overview of history, why the year 1689 is important, why it's important for uh, Reformed and Baptistic Christians, what religious tolerance uh, did, and how the Dutch and the English have this historical uh, connection. Also, the, the connection between Presbyterianism and the Baptists is also very, very close historically. And to this day, you have lots of cooperation between conservative Baptists and conservative Presbyterians, right? And so a good example would be someone like John MacArthur and his friendship with R.C. Sproul, a, a Baptist and a Presbyterian who are you know, this much overlap on their doctrine. There's a little bit difference on covenant theology on baptism, but they're, they're basically the same historically. Uh, hopefully we can understand a little bit of why that is. I'll stop here. That's like 200 years in half an hour, probably lots you can read up on this. You can go back and listen, whatever. Uh, I find it fascinating. There's lots of little anecdotes that I didn't tell. Charles' war against Parliament is interesting. Um, but there's only so much time. Questions on that? Discussion? It led to the English Civil War. Yeah, it was one of the frustrations that led to Jenny Geddes, the bishops. Yeah, every, yeah. Yeah, he declared war on his own country. Yep. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's separate... It's like a Venn diagram where these battles kind of turn... But yes, essentially there's the same thing. Marina, you had your hand up? Luther's anti-Semitism. Okay. Who's heard Luther was an anti-Semite? Okay. I'm not convinced he was. Um, something happened to Luther in 1521. Two things happened to Luther in 1521. He lost a daughter, and he went into a severe depression. There was a period of time where he didn't write anything. 
he was just severely depressed. Um, and his wife was enough of a firecracker one time. She came down uh, dressed in black, and Luther's moping at the table. Again, this is a stormy man. There's storm clouds with him wherever he goes. He's <laughs> the exact opposite of Kelvin. Um, and he says, oh, who died? And, he's, and she said, well, I'm afraid you did, the way you're carrying about here. Why don't you trust in God like you're teaching people to do? All right, point taken. <laughs> and so Luther kind of pulls out of it. But another thing happened with Luther is the peasants' revolt. Um, the peasants felt like they had a champion in Martin Luther, like he was a revolutionary. And again, I speak very poorly of revolution because I absolutely detest revolution um, in keeping with Protestant theory. Revolution is destructive. Luther absolutely did not want a peasant's revolt. But these guys said, well, if Luther's allowed to disobey uh, these authorities, that means we can start a revolution with the sword and start killing princes and dukes and, and so forth. And Luther was appalled that he was being misused in that way. And it, Luther goes through a very angry stretch. Some of these peasants have connections with Judaism, but I think basically, if you read, about, if you read Luther talking about the Jews, it's certainly not politically correct. Okay? Even to say the Jews isn't very politically correct. Um, I think what he's angry about is he is flabbergasted at their unbelief. Okay? He's reading the, the Gospel of Matthew like we are, and he's saying, how can these people have this right in front of them and they refuse to believe? So he's very angry, uh, appalled that the Jews don't believe, and he's appalled at the unbelieving Jews in his own day. I don't think it's an ethnic thing. I think it's an unbelief thing. Um, I've heard that from other people um, that reformational Christianity is anti-Semitic. Sometimes that's tied to Luther. That's absolutely not the case. Part of, this leads to another discussion about something that's happened later about how we understand Israel today and how we understand Jewish people today. Um, and some people who uh, hold to a view of what's called dispensationalism, that end times is still all about Israel and, and so forth, they will accuse Protestant Christianity or classical Reformed Christianity of being anti-Semitic. But older reformational thinking, including eschatology, always has the conversion of the Jews as one of the last things that happens before Christ returns. That's always been a feature. And, and I think Romans 11 just teaches that. That was part of their view is that the Jews will come in mass before Christ returns. Not because they're Jewish, but because they will believe in Christ. So there's not two programs of salvation, one for the church and one for the Jews. They believe that the Jews will come in mass into the church. And that was not happening fast enough for Luther, so he's angry. Read Luther for yourself on this. He is a stormy man, there's no question. And he says things, even by the standards of his day, which were much tougher than our soft standards today. The dialogue was rough in those days. People didn't sugarcoat things like we do today. They just said what they were thinking. But even by those standards, Luther stood in a class by himself of how rude and how brash he was. So yes, that's there. Do with that what you want. I think it's about unbelief. I don't think it's ethnic, but it's certainly not language I would be comfortable using at all, the way he talks about the Jews. More on that. Give an opportunity to someone who hasn't raised their hand yet. We've got some quiet people here. Anyone else? 
Has anyone heard that? Anti-Semitism in Luther? Did I, did I ask? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. I'd say look into it yourself. Okay, then we'll ask one more and then we'll close it down here. Ah, you wait till 1023? <laughs> Was John Calvin a murderer? Who's heard that? Okay, you're in a debate with someone and, and John 3.16 gets used 478 times in a row when you're talking about Reformed theology and then when that doesn't work, they say, well, Servetus, John Calvin's a murderer. Okay, uh, long story short, no, Servetus was a heretic that was wanted by all the religious authorities, Roman Catholics and Reformed alike. Calvin wrote him a letter, said, don't come to Geneva. If you come to Geneva, it's guaranteed you're going to get executed. There's so many warrants out for your arrest. Uh, you will get executed if you come back here. Naturally, Servetus refused to listen. He goes into Geneva, gets arrested. He was an anti-Trinitarian heretic that was wanted by everybody. And again, we have to get into their time, not ours. There is no religious toleration. He's arrested, doesn't recant, is sentenced to death. Calvin says, don't burn him. That's inhumane. Please behead him. So Calvin argued for a more humane death sentence. But yes, Calvin was very much in favor of Servetus' death sentence. Uh, but before that, he warned him, don't come here, you're going to get killed. And then he told the Catholic authorities, please don't burn him, rather behead him so it's quick and not cruel. Um, so, was Calvin in favor of capital punishment? Yes, he was. Was he a murderer? No, he was not. Yeah. Okay, why don't we close? Father God, thank you for uh, your work in history. Lord, at all these interesting contours, people that surprise us, strange people, godly people, and all sorts in between. Lord, thank you for the way that you've worked providentially through history to get us here. And I pray that studying history would give us a sense of perspective to understand the weird things about our own time as well, so that we would never fall into the trap of thinking that we live in normal times and everybody else is odd. Lord, give us a sense of humility give us a sense of perspective, and mostly give us a sense of courage as we look at the way you've worked through history, even during messy times, even through turmoil. Uh, Lord, you have been faithful to your people, and we pray that you would continue to do it, and do it even through us this morning. Amen.